Let's pray. Father, we just come before you with uh, this Thanksgiving as we read in Psalm 95. And uh, Lord, um, help us to understand as we study your word today by your spirit. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We will be in Hebrews chapter 4 today. If you want to turn there with me. As we turn, how about a little bit of uh, read and response? I'll say a word and you say the first word that comes to mind. Uh, Kansas City Chiefs. Uh, Dallas Cowboys. I guess I better sit down. I'm going to be cheering for both of those teams today. But. Um, so I love it at Open Door Bible Church, but i got to tell you the truth. Every once in a while, I'm embarrassed. Last week, I had a member of our nursery staff tell me that my three-year-old may have made a Goonies reference. I don't know if you're familiar with the movie. It's definitely not appropriate for three-year-olds. And I had to tell them, well, I don't even know if I explained it, but um, on our recent uh, Christmas vacation, the morning we were leaving, I had to wake them up at 6 a.m., which isn't normal. Usually they wake me up. Um, And I walked in the room and I said, hey, you guys. And so Will has been going through our church yelling that and maybe some people in the nursery might think that my children have seen movies that they shouldn't have. They haven't seen it yet. Tim, that's our generation, man. Hebrews chapter 4. That may or may not relate. As we look at God's word, well, what what if we thought about real estate? What are the three rules of real estate? Okay, so I always thought that was true. I don't know if it's still true. Everything's changing today. I think it's still true. Um, As we look at God's Word, what would those three rules be? Um, I think maybe the comparison there would be context, context, context. So as we look at Hebrews chapter 4 today, we have to think about what is the context? What's going on here? So just in short... um, I preached Hebrews chapter 3, but it's been like a few months. I can't expect everyone to have that on mind, right? I don't even have it all on mind, so I had to look back and reconsider the first three chapters of Hebrews and consider what's coming next in Hebrews, what the author and our God is trying to communicate to us. So as we begin today, we must remember that the focus of Hebrews thus far has been Jesus is better. In chapter 1, he is the final best revelation from God. In chapters 1 and 2, we see that he is better than the angels, and we see proofs given for all the reasons that he is better than the angels. Anyone who wants to turn to the angels instead of Christ, bad choice. He is better than the angels. And then in chapter 3, we saw that he's better than Moses. And now kind of the end of three and into four and then all the way in through chapter seven, what we're going to see is that Jesus is better than the Old Testament priesthood, the the Aaronic priesthood. So that's what we're kind of in the middle of. 
He hasn't really said that so much yet, but we're going to kind of start to feel it maybe a little bit in chapter 4 as we continue. Chapter 3 finished with a kind of 8 to 10 verse section about the generation of the wilderness wanderers. So that's where we kind of left off there. They were in continual sin. They had hard hearts. And they didn't enter God's promised rest in Canaan. So that's where we left off. Let's read our passage together today. Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to read it all, verses 1 through 16. See if you can stick with me. Therefore, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have good news preached to us, just as they also But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we have believed, excuse me, for we who have believed enter that rest, just as he said. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day today, saying through David, after so long a time, just as has been said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest... He would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare in the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus The Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things and as as we are, and yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So, this passage... There are a few keys that we've got to kind of uh, get an understanding of, I hope, as we as we study today. Probably the keys relate to rest. Rest is mentioned quite a bit there. Um, the disobedience of the wilderness wanderers and then disobedience possibly today. Well, how do those relate to one another? Um, those are a couple of the keys. And then obviously as you get into 14 through 16, we see kind of a a unique passage about God's throne of grace and how he understands and sees. So, here we go. Chapter 4, verse 1. Kind of key here, Therefore, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of us may seem 
to have come short of it. So this seam, I mentioned it last time, uh, as we looked at the end of chapter 3, may seem to have come short of it. Uh, here's why I think it's pretty important. This Greek word, dokeo, to seem. It's also used in Luke 24:37. I'll give you that uh, context. When the disciples thought they saw a ghost out on uh, out at Galilee, and it's Jesus. They thought they saw a ghost. It seemed like, but it wasn't. Who was it? It was Jesus. It was not a ghost. That's the same term used here. That they seem to have come short of it. Therefore, let us fear for while a promise remains of entering his rest. There's a promise, this author saying, for the readers today, I would say for all New Testament believers, there is a promise that remains to enter God's rest. And it can seem like some people may have fallen short of it. And that's not a great place to be. And I think that's what our author is getting at. We don't want it to be that way, that we come together and fellowship with other believers and we look around like, wow, none of us look like we're growing. Wow, none of us look very sanctified today. Wow, this seems like, no, not a great place to be. So that's what he's getting at there in verse 1. It might, might seem like some believers have come short of it, but we know that they haven't. And then, you know, he affirms in that verse, the promise remains. Therefore, let us fear if while the promise remains, there is a remaining promise of rest. This is something yet future, obviously, while the promise remains of something yet future, a rest that will take place. So it's not a current rest. It's a promised rest. The writer doesn't even say of himself, Boy, I've taken hold of this rest. Boy, I, I hope some of you can. Uh, a promise remains for some of you. You might be able to later. I've already got it. It's not what he says. He says the promise remains for all of us. We talked about what most commentators believe this rest is, so I'm not going to harp on that again. But just simply, uh, for clarity's sake... I want to read uh, verses 19 through 2 together, so 319 through 2, to kind of make sure that we have context for what is that rest. Verse 19 reads this way, So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. That's the wilderness wanters. Could not go into the rest in Canaan. Therefore let us fear, if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. That's not the Canaan Promise rest, because it's a current, it's a future. It's talking about this group of believers and New Testament believers. And then verse 2, for indeed we have good news preached to us. We've had good news preached to us, just as they also. A different good news, slightly different, for sure. Good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. The author tells us that this time of rest is promise. It's yet future, even for the author. It's troublesome uh, to read a verse and not get that context. Many Christians would say this passage is warning us against losing our faith or lost salvation. And I'm going to say real quickly again, it isn't. It's not here. In verse 2, what we saw there is that that promise remains for those with faith 
It remains for those with faith. Uh, it was not united by faith in those who heard, is the end of verse 2. So the wilderness wanderers didn't follow God in faith. They believed at one time, I think we're going to see them in heaven. But they lived their life in disobedience and said, God, mm, yeah, you promised this rest, but look at us, we're walking out here. We want water, we don't want a bitter, we want meat, we want to go back. We... They didn't live in obedience to God, and he said, ah, enough. Enough sin, enough disobedience, enough not living in your faith. Uh, so you're not going into that rest. Remember, the writer of Hebrews is writing to Jewish believers. Jewish believers. In 3.12, uh, he says, take care, brethren. In 4.1, he says, therefore, let us. Verse 3 reads this way. For we have believed, we who have believed, enter that rest, just as he said. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Okay, so this is maybe not, maybe I shouldn't include all this here, but this is the emphatic future tense is what's going on here. He is, the word is a serkomai, and he is saying that we are sure to enter it, we who believe. Verse 3 is just, he's confirming to those readers that we are sure to enter it. It's going to happen. And it sounds like they already have. For we who have believed enter that rest. That kind of sounds like, wait, is it happening right then? Or what's going on there? He's saying, we are sure to enter. There's no question. Those who have believed, we're going to enter this rest. This is going to happen. Um, So he gives us that information and he says, God's purpose and his provision did not guarantee that his people would experience it. God's purpose and his provision didn't guarantee that they would experience it. This also depended on their faith. Our faith is a decision that's made. Though the millennium had been planned from the foundation of the world, though it had been planned from the foundation of the world, verse 3, for we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. It was going to happen. Christ was going to come. Christ was going to die. People were going to have to believe. That was finished. The millennium was going to happen. The reign of Christ on earth is going to happen. There's no doubt that this is going to happen. But their entering the rest and our entering the rest still relied on faith. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, uh, the, end, the, the end of verse 2, it was not united by faith in those who heard. It rel- we, faith is required. It was required of the wilderness wanderers to enter Canaan. It's required of us today to enter the rest, whatever this rest is. Verses 4 through 6 continue, for he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day today. For God, uh, 
ceased in his work of creation. That's what's going on there in verse 4. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested. When he rested, it's not an idea of, boy, I need to really uh, take a break and recharge. Not the idea. Uh, It's a cessation from work, and that's what happened there with God. And his, uh, when his work of creation was complete, he could truly rest completely. Verse 5 then flips the script, uh, noting that the wilderness wanderers shall not enter the rest. It didn't happen in Canaan. They would never get to the land. Even their children who did enter the land never had a lasting rest that was offered and was available. And verse 6 uh, it's kind of a passage that says, but back to the now in these Jewish believers who are reading and New Testament believers who read this passage. Some are still to enter rest. It's a guarantee in, in verse 6. It's going to happen. And it's going to be a lasting rest. Look back at why they didn't enter the rest and don't do that. That's what the author is trying to communicate. Look back at those wilderness wanderers. Why didn't they enter rest? Well, look at us. We don't want to be that. We don't want to be where they were, hard-hearted, acting against God in disobedience. They had the good news of who God is. They had a form of grace, I would say, in the law. And they had provision with the sacrificial system, but they disobeyed consistently. It was a heart issue for them, though not a salvation issue, though not a salvation issue. Their salvation wasn't tied up in whether they could enter the land. We don't see that. What we see is a believing group of people. If you read about them, it says numerous times in Exodus especially, and and Numbers as well, it confirms it again. They believed God. They believed him. And it's the same term that's used for Abraham when he believed God. So I think they believed God, and it's not a salvation issue there that they didn't enter Canaan. But it's an issue that these Jewish readers should consider. And the author tells them so. You see what's going on here. The author is drawing parallels between God's rest, his Sabbath day rest, his seventh day. He was done. He ceased from his work. The wilderness generation's possible rest. And the New Testament believers, possible rest. They don't have to be exact matches. They're not the exact same rests. We weren't creating for six days and needed another day at the end. No, that's not what happened. It's a comparison of a few different rests that we see in God's word. Verse 7 continues, he again fixes a certain day today, saying through David, after so long a time. Just as has been said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So our author says, hey, this was an offer made to the wilderness wanderers. And then David repeats it again some 400 years later. And he says, still today, there's there's still an option to enter this rest. And then our author says, guess what? Still today, hundreds of years later, I can repeat this same offer from God. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So verses 7 and 8 there. 
in David's age, that offer had not changed, and it hasn't changed for the age of the Hebrews and the author writes that he writes to, and it hasn't changed today. This is the primary comparison. Are we going to have faith and live in faithfulness or no? Answer the call to faithfulness or no? And then in verse 8, if Joshua had given them rest or complete rest with finality, God would not have spoken of another day through David. But another day is offered. And the Old Testament quotes here are based on Psalm 95, which was read to us. Thanks, Tim. Psalm 95 is an enthronement psalm, focusing in on the worship and rest given by God to Israel in the, you guessed it, in the millennium. Psalm 95 is an enthronement psalm thinking about Christ ruling on earth. You must see with me, if you are a believing Jew in the first century, what, what are your thoughts on rest and being in the land? What's running through your mind? How do you think about rest and being in the land? You're under Roman occupation. You don't, you're not in the land in that way in this moment. You had your chance. Maybe you thought, maybe you think, well, we had our chance in Joshua's time. We almost had it. You know, we were there in the land some and we had a little bit of rest, but not, well, we had our chance and we lost it. Maybe that's what this author is talking about. He's saying, no, you can't, no, it's not just that. There's a promised rest. It's not just past. There's a promised rest. So in your heart, as that Jew in the first century, you're still looking for a kingdom. You're still looking for a promised throne. You're still looking for the promised king and for a land. Also of note here, consider the broader themes of God's word and his world and his plan. And this is just as I was studying last night, I thought, I think I need to share this. Most of our uh, Reformed and Covenant brothers and sisters, and I love them, and that we're going to be in heaven with them, uh, but most of them would think that the grand theme of God's Word is salvation. This is the grand theme of God's Word, salvation of mankind. And I would like you to consider two other possible grand themes from God's Word. The glory of God. Maybe salvation is just one theme that's working toward the glory of God. And a second one that I think is actually a grander theme, a, a, a more major theme from God's perspective than just salvation of mankind, and that would be the kingdom. Why? Uh, salvation is just, in my opinion, the ticket to the grand show. Jesus is going to be ruling on the throne, on this earth. And that is, a, in my opinion, a much more important <laughs> fact than the salvation of mankind. Now, is it more important to me, like practically? Like, maybe not. But like, is it more important to consider the fact that God has made a choice and he has said, I'm going to send my... And Jesus is going to rule on earth for a thousand years and then... Hand the keys over to me into eternity. Boy, that's a pretty key perspective to think about as we think about God's Word. If we read this passage only thinking about salvation, we're going to miss a whole lot about the kingdom and what God is going to do. 
So I would say consider possibly key themes being the glory of God and the kingdom of Christ, his rule and reign on earth. And salvation is a beautiful theme and an important one. And for me, it might slot right underneath those two. He is the story. Is he not? Back to our text in verse 9. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. A literal Sabbath rest for the people of God. A rest. This uh, Greek word, sabbatismo. A, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. It's a different word for rest than all these other rests that we see here. Like the rest that God had after creation. A ceasing. God does all things perfectly. And I think this is a unique thought here in this in this chapter. God does all things perfectly. The term used for rest in Genesis 2 does not connotate reinvigoration. It expresses cessation. He rested perfectly from his work. Uh, on Shabbat, on, on the Sabbath yesterday in Jerusalem and all around the world, wherever... Orthodox Jews are found or ultra-Orthodox Jews are found. They didn't even come close to resting as perfectly as God did on the seventh day. They may have done as well as a human can, but they can't even measure up in their rest. Uh, we had good friends uh, in in Israel when we were there that would say, Hey, you know what, in my apartment building this is always happening Orthodox, ultra-Orthodox people coming to me on the Shabbat and asking me, can you turn on my light? Or can you turn on my refrigerator for me? Or press this button for me. Boy, they are trying to rest. But to do so, they had to run up three sets of stairs, <laughs> knock on somebody's door and say, can you come with me? Oh boy, they're trying to rest with all their heart and not resting like God did. Ceasing from His work. Believers will have that perfect rest. We will rest perfectly. That's the promise here. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. A perfect rest. We are going to rest perfectly at some point. Resting perfectly as God so desired. So how's that going to happen? Let's keep reading. Verse 10. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his uh, the term used here is a proleptic use of enter. We're kind of looking uh, like we did in verse uh, 5 there, 6. Uh, for the one who has entered, sounds like he already has, right? Um, scholars, commentaries, you know, they think about this passage and they say this is a proleptic. So it's before the entering will happen. He's saying it like, hey, it's happened. It's going to happen. It's a guarantee. So I'm going to speak of it. As if it's done. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works. Have we done that perfectly yet? No, I don't think so. We'll talk about that in a second. But just as God did from his, have we rested perfectly how God does? Hmm. The point is that when we do really enter the promised rest, we will rest like God. Perfectly. Can we do this? On this side of heaven. Have you ever had that perfectly peaceful moment in time? You kick your feet up. You lay back. 
You relax. You cease all work thinking about. You cease all thinking about work. Thinking about things that need to be completed. Have you had that moment? How long did it last? I think my longest might be like 30 or 45 minutes. I don't know. I don't think I've ever perfectly rested for very long. Maybe you're better at that than I am. To perfectly rest, not even consider what needs to be done, what might be done in the future. Maybe you're on a beach somewhere or by a mountain stream or fi- uh, finishing a tough climb up a mountain and you sit down at the top and uh, you just really rest. How long did it last? Did you rest perfectly like God? Uh, maybe, it's a, maybe it's a little bit of a foreshadowing when you do rest really well of what God's going to do in us when he gives us perfect rest. We would be, I think we'd be remiss not to make a striking connection here. Chapter 3, verse 2 tells us that Jesus was faithful to the one who appointed him. We are also told in chapter 1 that Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father after his works were complete. He rested. He was done. Nothing else needed to be done to complete that work. He was done. It was a perfect rest. And what we're seeing here in 9 and 10 and beyond, we're going to have a perfect rest. As believers, verse 11 continues, Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest. Wow. Let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the example of disobedience, the wilderness wanderers. Don't follow their example. Here's a parallel. We can, not, we can instead be obedient, not disobedient like they were. Diligent. Uh, or eager and alert, uh, that's what this, this term means here, diligent in verse 11. It means to be eager or to be alert, to hasten it. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest. Be eager to enter it. Hasten that entering rest. Somehow, the author says that they can do so. We should want to enter that rest. We should be diligent with our lives, not lazy. Assuming that... Things are all good with God, no matter where we are in our heart. Uh, No matter where our heart is, just assuming things are great. Uh, God does not approve of laziness in faith. If they are believers here that he's talking to, which I think they are, God wants them to be diligent in their living as unto him. And today for us, to be diligent in our living as unto him. Now, if a non-believer happens to read this, he wants them to believe and obey in faith. And we see that in this passage, too. If a non-believer read it, I think that's what they would read. They would say, oh, I can't just be diligent. I can't just do works. It says something about belief. Oh, verse 19. Oh, unbelief. They didn't enter. Oh, belief. Maybe I could enter. That sounds good. Verses 12 and 13 continue. And we're almost we're almost there. We're almost getting here. 12 and 13 continue this way. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So we all know this passage. It is oft quoted and how often contextualized? Like, what, what's going on in this passage? Is that how people quote it? 
Do people quote it and say, so this is about our rest and entering rest? Uh, No, not usually. Uh, Usually when we quote it, we're saying, God's going to judge you someday. How are you going to do it? Or uh, God knows all things. God knows it. And maybe those things are true. There's a judgment seat of Christ. And God does know all things. But what's the context and how does it fit within this context? This sword that's talking about... The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. This Greek term was originally a small sword, like a boning knife that cuts, excuse me, that cooks used to cut up the meat. In its double-edged form, it was a symbol of the judges and magistrates of the Roman world. It illustrates their power, the power of those officials to turn both ways to get to the bottom of the case. If you have a judge or a magistrate that's only cutting one way, that only wants one thing to be true and won't allow the opposite to be true, you're in trouble. Thank God for the Supreme Court's ruling this week. Um, You're in trouble if you're not going to look at both perspectives. And this sword is specifically one with two edges that can see either way, see the truth either way, whichever way is true. It sees it. It gets to it. What the author is saying is that God's word can reach the innermost recesses of our being in truth. We must not think that we can bluff our way out of anything. For there is no there are no secrets hidden from God. And contextually, the question that is being raised here is about their belief and their following after God and their disobedience or their obedience and the fact that there could be in verse 1, if while a promise remains of entering rest, any one of us might seem to have come short of it. God doesn't not know the recesses of our heart. He knows and understands. And if there's a believer in a church there today, in a church in Open Door, in a church, you name it, if there's a believer... That seems to not be following after God. It's not our job to look at them and say, you're out. You're out. Look, look at you. I can, I can tell you're out. Guess whose job it is? 12 and 13. The word of God. His active word. It's active because he is a living God. He sees. He knows. If that is a believer, he's, he's going to bring that believer into the rest. And if it's someone who's not a believer, he's not going to bring him into the rest, obviously. But I think that's what this passage is about. A lot of commentators said that's about the judgment seat of Christ. And I, I actually don't think it is. I think it's about the fact that God knows our hearts. He knows the depths of us. And in relating it to the passage, he knows who will enter the rest and who won't. And we don't need to look at each other and say, I think you might be in, I think you might be out. After those last few verses, you feel like you might need a great high priest? (laughs) I know I do. Praise God we have one. Let's finish this passage, verses 14 through 16. Therefore, because of what has been mentioned, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. 
confession, excuse me. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things, as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I think the verses here are truly about the nearness of God to his children. The author of Hebrews faithfully, consistently, gives us little windows to look in, to look into heaven, to look into the goodness of God, to look into the abode of our Heavenly Father. He allows us to see the nearness and goodness of our great high priest amidst the harsher language of warning throughout the book. This is a lot of language of warning. Oh, what if you don't know? What if it seems like somebody's not going to? What if it? Oh, no. And then he gives us a window. Then he gives us a window. So would you peek in with me into this window? Verses 14 through 16 tell us that we have a great high priest. In Hebrew, to have is a key verb. These Jews, as they read this, we have this, this is our possession, this is in our being, this is, we have it. There's no question about it being taken away. We have a great high priest. It's in our possession. We continue in those verses, we see that he sympathizes with us. Our great high priest who is perfect sympathizes with us. We see that he has been tempted and is without sin. He is a perfect high priest. He doesn't sometimes probably fail because he might mess up. He might not quite. No, no, no. He's unfailing in his ministry to us. We also see that we draw near to God's throne of grace through him. We draw near to his throne of grace because of Christ. We see that we can go with confidence. This window into heaven. We can go with confidence to his throne. We don't have to go with guilt and just worried. and kind of, That doesn't mean that we're never guilty. We ask for forgiveness. But we approach with confidence. Because of our relationship to him, we can approach with confidence. We see that mercy is offered us. And we see that we find grace there in our time of need. This window into heaven, after this warning language, here's the guarantee. Here's the reality. You have a great high priest. This throne of grace that's spoken of, think about it. The sovereign of the universe sits on the most magnificent, holy, powerful throne conceivable. Yet for us, it's full of grace. He is full of grace for a believer. He doesn't give us what we deserve when we approach. He is merciful toward us. He is full of grace. So, don't be like the wilderness wanderers i got to say that to myself. Don't be like the wilderness wanderers. In their disobedience, they believed at a time, and I think we'll see them in heaven. But that didn't mean that they entered this promised rest that they had promised to them, different than our promised rest. 
God said, look at this constant disobedience. No, you don't get to go into that promised rest. Let's not be like them. Let's not be full of disobedience in our walks with the Lord. If you haven't believed yet in the Messiah and who he is and what he did, believe now and enter that assured rest in the millennial kingdom. Assured. Spoken of as, ah, we're going to enter it. We're entering it. It's, it's done. Believe now. You'll go into that rest. The millennial kingdom. The promise remains today if you hear his voice. Do not harden your heart. That rest is long prophesied. Old Testament, full of it. The rest is long prophesied. It will happen. As believers, we will be there. Be diligent in your walk with the Lord. Wait forwardly to enter that rest. Wait forwardly. We've got to wait on it. Forwardly, looking toward it. Oh, Lord, looking forward to Jesus ruling on earth. And living with a perfect ruler on the throne of David. You have a great high priest. Trust him. Go to him. Rely on him. Not on your own goodness. Not on your works. Not on your effort. And finally, approach the throne of grace. Every day, believers have the ability, in every moment, any moment, to approach that throne of grace. Approach the throne of grace. Let's approach the throne of grace together in prayer, and then have Daniel help us approach in song. Father, we love you. We thank you so much for how you reveal to us in your word, and how you um, help us to understand sometimes things happening right now in life, Sometimes things that you have promised yet future. Sometimes looking at the past to help us understand as well. So, Father, I praise you for even Hebrews chapter 4. I pray that uh, anything that I was off on, I pray that you would use your Holy Spirit to convict us and to help us understand. Uh, Father, we love you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for the mercy and grace provided to us. And thank you for your throne full of grace. In Jesus' name, amen.